Welcome to Success Stories, the podcast where outstanding women share their journey to leadership, the personal habits that have helped them succeed, and the projects they're passionate about. Join me, your host, Catherine Robson, as we redefine what success looks like. A very special guest speaker at this year's Intersect Fintech Festival in Melbourne is the world's foremost expert on open banking, Nalixa Devluka. In this interview, she shares what the introduction of open banking means for Australia and why having deep expertise in a specific field can make you more likely to be in the right place at the right time for your career. So open banking is top of mind here in Australia because our regulatory environment has just changed to facilitate uh, greater consumer control over their data. There's probably no one in the world that knows more about that than you do, having been the head of the regulatory authority that um, facilitated open banking in the UK. Um, What was the UK experience and what can we learn from it in Australia? So I think that the, the legislators and the regulators in Australia have spent quite a lot of time looking at the UK experience and other jurisdictions across the globe before they actually framed what they enshrined into their consumer data rights legislation. And I think that they've been really mindful of looking at what has worked well and then thinking about what does not work so well and implementing a different regime. Can you give us examples of what didn't work so well in the European and the oh, UK yes, context? Absolutely. <laughs> um, we have something that we call 90-day reauthentication, and it means that every 90 days the consumer has to re-enter their banking credentials in order for the access to the account to remain in place. So and let's just... So in the Australian context, let's just say you've gone onto a fintech app and you've authorised access to transactional data from your main bank, ANZ, for example. Yes. In the UK context, every 90 days you would have had to re-enter your internet banking credentials yes. to allow that free flow of data to keep going. Yes. Yep. And you have to do that in the UK and across Europe and it's hard baked into the legislation. And... Looking back, obviously, that legislation was written about four years ago now. Technology has moved on. It's not really the right place uh, to be in. Uh, Australia has looked at that and said, actually, 12 months is fine. And, um, and I'm, that is a much better outcome. But that, that's taking the benefit of lessons learnt. And in the UK, you know, we can look back with hindsight and think, yeah, we know why it's there. It's there for consumer protection. It's there to remind them that they've given this access. But 90 days isn't the right touch point anymore. And so hopefully you have that virtuous circle that eventually there'll be the lessons learnt taken from what's happening in Australia and taken back across the water and enshrined into the EU and UK legislation. Um, How did you find your role within a regulator in a fast-moving environment, particularly when you've got sort of stakeholders um, with various different interests. So presumably you had big incumbent banks who were potentially resistant and then you potentially had new entrants who were keen to push maybe beyond what the regulatory appetite or comfort level was. How how did you manage those different pressures? It's a challenge Um, and obviously I've been at the FCA, which was the UK regulator, and the EBA, which was the European regulator, And you have to 
be mindful of the fact that the smaller firms, whether they're fintechs or not, do not have the resources of the larger firms. They don't have big policy departments and big compliance departments. They really don't have the capacity to, to send in very lengthy responses to consultations. And so it's looking at other ways and means of getting that engagement to ensure that you're getting that balanced approach. And that could be actually, look, come and talk to us, we'll have a round table, you know, we'll run a session, we'll do a webinar, some other way of getting that engagement. And then obviously at um, OBIE, because of the entity that OBIE, OBIE Open Banking Implementation Entity, where I was the head of regulatory, um, it was incepted to formulate the standards for open banking in the UK. And um, for want of a better description, it's a very well-funded startup. And so it was able to put in place a very comprehensive stakeholder engagement program of face-to-face workshops, webinars. So that, that really enshrined into the sort of DNA of the standards that they were built in a very collaborative way with a lot of stakeholder input. Um, for you personally, presumably in you know the roles that you've had, particularly the fact that they were leadership roles, but often when you're working under time pressure, when there's sort of mandated deadlines you have to work to, how have you personally been able to sort of keep body and mind together and, and perform at a high level when you've got some of those um, e- external pressures? It's very simple things. You have to take me time for one of a better description. I actually, while I was doing all of the PSD2 work, um, took up running just because I needed something that gave me a time where I wasn't thinking about work. But, you know, that's personal. Other people might do yoga. They might, you know, read a book. But you have to take that time out. You also just have to be brutal about work-life balance. You know, everybody's committed to their job. Everybody wants the best outcomes. But uh, for women particularly... If you have family commitments, it can be really, really hard to find that balance. And I'll be up front. There have been times in my life where I have not managed it well at all. I'd like to think I'm better at it now. And does and that come just, with seniority and maturity or reflecting think, on when it hasn't worked and made different choices? I think some of it comes with seniority and maturity. I think a lot of it actually is down to workplace culture as well. I think that if people feel that they have the capacity to actually, you know, if they want flexibility, they're not going to be penalised for it. And what was really interesting is while I've been here, I received an email from somebody I've met at the conference, and I went up to them and I said, I love what you've put underneath your email, which is, it says something along the lines of, to manage my work-life balance, I work flexible hours. So I may email you at strange times. I don't expect you to respond. And I said, I really like that because it's really important because I do the same. You know, I have family and I might send emails 10 o'clock at night, but that's what works for me. It's not because I'm these days working silly hours, (laughs) but it's because I've done the other things I wanted to do that day. And I thought, actually, I should say that. I don't expect people to respond to me immediately. Um, So there's culture. I think there is generally a change in overall um, company culture as well, that we we are no longer expected to be there 
you know, 24-7. There, there was that time, was there not, in the 80s, whatever, where we had the sort of the Gordon Gecko Wall Street And it was effect. a badge of honour. Yeah. The, the more hours you work, the, exactly. the more you felt yeah. like a worthwhile human being. And that was sad, wasn't it? <laughs> Um, one of the things that you've been a great advocate for is to attract more women into a range of industries that traditionally have been male-dominated. What do you think we need to do more of or do better to attract women into you know, financial services and, and technology? Again, a lot of it is corporate culture. It's about flexibility. It's about uh, allowing women the space they need um, to manage their careers, to know that they have a voice and they have value. Um, but I also think it's important uh, at events like this that there are women on the stage. Uh, and that's something I'm passionate about. It's something I advocate a lot of. I, mean, I do it personally. Uh, I do it because I think it's valuable. Um, I like sharing my knowledge. I like being on stage. But I like the fact that, you know, there will be people there younger women who ever think actually I can do that and I think that sort of visible role model is really really important um and 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 then I do other things I go into schools and give talks um because I've, I've had a bit of a a mishmash career for want of a better description um and I think that it's also interesting that in this day and age it's not really expected that you just have one job for life and and you can go off and do other things and be maybe a bit more adventurous. Well, and you have been adventurous. So you started life in private practice as a lawyer and then, you know, a distinguished career um, in the regulatory environment and now that you're off doing um, you know, private consulting, did that come naturally or was that something that you really had to work on? No, it didn't come naturally. I think I've... I, I, it would be lovely to say it was all planned and, I, and it was a, the grand scheme of things and it absolutely wasn't. What I have done is particularly, uh, you know, in the, in the last sort of 10 to 15 years is look to move to roles that really interest me. Um, and, it, and it was only because I was doing things like that. I was in-house at Barclays for a long time, and I did a lot of... I did, you know, lending, I did trade finance, receivables finance, and the last job I had at Barclays was supporting their global payments team. And that was it. That was my niche. I am now a payments nerd. And I was really fortunate that, as I was doing that role, this opportunity came up at the regulator... And that was a that was a quantum leap. I, you know, I'm I'm a lawyer by background. This was not a legal role. It was a policy role. Um, it was a, a a different mindset from being in house legal at a very large bank to going to the regulator. Um, but it was an area uh, of law that interested me, and therefore it could be an area of policy that could interest me. And I was really fortunate because just after I joined, they published PSD two, and I spent. A good number of years working on that, um, negotiating, and being a lawyer, I'm sure helped in that role. Um, I was able to sort of take it up to a different level and do European work because of it. It gave me lots of exposure to lots of different issues, not just payments, because as a regulator, you have to think about a whole plethora of issues before you can make a decision about, well, this is the policy. Um, and then I actually did make that conscious decision to set up my own business 
because I wanted to go and do the open banking role because I'd done payments for a long time, I'd done payments policy and I looked around and I thought, well, actually, open banking is a global phenomenon. It, it is not just happening in Europe and in Canada and Australia, but it's happening in many other countries. And also, it, it was that bit of a, a brave step into the unknown that I would quite like to be my own boss. But a word of warning to anybody who's thinking of it, there is a lot of admin I had not anticipated. <laughs> you know, it sounds really silly, but I had not anticipated the amount of paperwork and admin that goes with running your own business. Well, and the sort of infrastructure you take for granted that's provided in an organisation, be it, you know, in government or, you know, in a bigger yes. corporation. Um, Absolutely. You you learn a whole new skill set. Um, and, and that's been fun. It's been challenging. It's been, oh, my God, why did I really do this? And I'm still on that journey. I'm, I'm only, what, 12 months into it. Um, so far, it's going well. But... I think at the end of the day, the, the big thing about everything that I, I try and do now is that I want to give value, I want to share the knowledge I have, but when I look at a role, I want to learn something too. You know, that's what interests me. And, and growing, I think that's yeah. for anybody. Identify for yourself what makes you tick. You know, what makes me tick isn't what makes you tick, Caroline, or somebody else. What is it that makes you want to make it, makes you want to get up and go to work? Because we have to do a lot of it, you know. Most of us have to do it to pay the bills. So you have to want to do it and enjoy it and, and for me, learn from it. it. Has there ever been a time where you've made a mistake or a misstep that um, you've been challenged by but then and taken learnings from? Oh, I think that happens all the time. Um, I think that, yeah, if you don't make mistakes, you're not going to learn. I think that the important thing and the challenge of that is not to uh, take it in any way as a personal criticism of yourself or that you're not good enough. And I think that particularly um, women do do that you know, it's like the, the sort of the well-known stats about women don't apply for jobs if they don't tick all the boxes. And and I think that, that, that that is part of the sort of career journey that I have been on personally in that, you know, I have sat and thought, actually, I'm not good enough to do this role or, you know, I'm not sure I can do all of these things. And actually, it doesn't really matter if I can't do all of those things because there is a hell of a lot I can do and I'm good at. And that's what I bring to the table. Are there resources, books, um, podcasts, publications, things that have been helpful or instrumental in your career journey that, that you would recommend to others? There is no one particular resource or book because it, it is taking different bits from different aspects of whatever you're interested. You know, so I think... For me, things like time for yourself, um, physical exercise, all of that is important because you need that to sort of maintain your own well-being. Um, but I also think that it's important to, to pay attention to the people around you that you actually admire and learn from them. In that that's, that's the, I, I now, I see in myself 
things that I do that I've thought, actually, that person does that well, and this has the following outcomes. And I've had managers, really good managers, um, who I've thought, oh, yeah, that's a much better way of doing X, Y, or Z, and I would like to try it, and it's had outcomes. And I And for me... I find that a better way of bettering myself than reading a book that says these are the 10 things that successful people do. I mean, you know, and, and probably if you read those sorts of books, you'll probably find that you're doing quite a lot of them anyway. Maybe not to the letter, but you're, you're doing the same things. I think sort of some of it is just inherent in how people who want to succeed behave. But for me, it, it's taking from the people around me and also I, I I found that coaching was actually quite valuable so you had you appointed I, a one-on-one I, coach I did I did I decided that there was a point in my career where at I what felt stage of your career when you were making the transition from this was just before I made the transition to the regulator yeah. and it's probably what helped me make the transition to the regulator and I'd been in-house and legal for quite a long time I didn't feel that I was making the progress that I would like to make. And it's like, so what am I doing? Why isn't it going? You know, I wasn't satisfied. And so I did. I, I, I asked some friends who I'd know had been through it. And I, I and it was not even a face-to-face relationship. You know, this coaching happened over the phone. It was only four sessions. Wow. But high impact. Yeah, very high impact. But I think that's because I wanted mm. to do it. No, nobody said to me, you should have a coach, you should do this. Um, the other things that I find beneficial for me also is that I've done some mentoring in my time. And I think that as a mentor, you also learn. Mm. You know, not, not in the same way that hopefully you're helping your mentee, but you also learn. Um, and I think that there is a point in time as well that if you think about, well, what can I, for want of a better description, give back? That also has positive outcomes for you as a person, but also for how you might view the value of what you do. So when you look forward now, as you say, you're driven um, by, you know, learning and growth and challenge. What do you have as your big, hairy, audacious goals for the future? I've never called, heard them called hairy audacious goals before. <laughs> well, it's certainly, I didn't come up with it. I think it's a Google expression. <laughs> I would like to, it, this is a very personal thing for me in that I'm quite passionate about the financial services education that children receive in schools. Uh, to put it very bluntly, they're taught what change they should get from a £10 note. That is not the world that my children are going to live in or live in today. Um, and I would like to uh, progress that more. You know, I'm, I'm doing it as part of my payback type of stuff. And I, but I, I would like to see a change in how financial education is dealt with in schools. People talk a lot about financial education. Well, by the time you're probably 25 or 30 or whatever, it's a little bit too late. A lot of those behaviours are hardwired. Yes. And, and I think the point is, is that also by that stage, people are scared of it. It's almost like, oh, I can't possibly understand it. Um, whereas actually, if, if, if you're somehow exposed to it, I'm not saying you have to be taught it, but if you're exposed to it, 
from a much earlier age. Simple things like this is a debit card, this is a credit card. They look exactly the same, but boy, are they different. <laughs> Well, in what, what impact they're going to have in your life. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, a monthly interest rate versus yeah. an annual interest rate, you know, they might look similar, but as you say, a huge difference. Exactly. And then for myself and my personal goals, I, I would actually like to just be better at running my own business. These are, these are baby steps, you know. Yeah. My passion is travel. And so actually, when I come out to conferences like this, I get to fulfill that passion. So, you know, two birds with one stone. <laughs> well, it's fabulous to have you here in Australia. We really need um, deep experts like you as we traverse new terrain here in, in the Australian fintech landscape. So thank you so much for making your time and insights available. Oh, no, thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Every week I find a nugget of gold in each discussion something I want to take away and implement in my own life. If you feel the same, I'd love to know how my guests touch your lives. You can leave a review on iTunes or get in touch on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks to the awesome Buffy Gorilla for production, Alicia Piper for her fantastic writing, and to Broke Free, who wrote and performed our theme music. See you next week.